That's I actually remember being 10 years old at the airport and seeing all the flaws in the security system and be thinking, well, if I wanted to hijack this plane, this is exactly how I would coordinate it. This is Visitation Sessions, a weekly conversation about the sacred, the profane, and everything in between. Co-hosted by me, Kate Stapleton, my husband, Casey Stapleton, and our friends, Chris and Emily Chapman. This week's topic, friendship. I think like 4 p.m. is a good, like recorded at 4 p.m. Once we have then it, then eat food. But like oh, 4 p.m. friendship. No. No. Friendship. Zero. No. no. What's our name? We don't, we don't have one. 4 a.m. friendship. Chris, why, why, why 4 a.m.? <laughs> you know, there's a whole, because there's a whole... Um, website dedicated to 4 a.m. Yeah, lots of, so- lots of references bit, and songs to like 4 in the morning. Because yeah. 4 a.m. is, as they were saying, was, at least when I listened to it, it was like, it might have even been an NPR thing. But, you know, like 4 a.m. is kind of when the, that day is over and the new day has begun. So if you're up at 4 a.m. and you've been up the whole night, you've been up the whole night at 4 a.m. And if you're waking up at 4 a.m., like you're getting the head started. And 4 a.m. is kind of a magical Time. Mm. Emily, not, Emily is a 4 a.m. person. Like she you are. That's why you're tired right now. Yeah. So I like it. I'm like uh, after. Everyone always wants me to do these podcast interviews at nine o'clock at night, and I always want to die. And because you you actually yes. like wake up at 4 a.m. Because I wake up at purpose? 4 a.m. Is so that actually the time? Like I'm trying to four four thirty, and so I don't. I, like every day. Seven days you know, a week. They say everyone has so many words in a day, and women have a lot more words than men. But by the time I hit 8 p.m., I've been up for 18 hours, and I don't have words left. Can I we just, really wait, don't. Every single day, seven days a week, you wake up at 4 a.m. or 4:30. Almost. She's been no, sleeping until No, on Sundays I'll sleep. I slept till seven today. I That's after like two seven. weeks. But, of, yeah, after sleeping sick because I was still getting up really early yeah. at 4:30 to work all week because Chris was leaving and I had work to do. So even though I'm sick and I have like a fever, I'm still getting up at 4.30. Until the one day that you went crazy and slept until 7. I slept until 7. I just don't. Like wintertime, yeah. Because if so often we don't have any help with the kids. And so if I'm going to get any work done, it has to happen in those couple of hours before everybody wakes up and Chris has to leave for school. So we almost could have hung out. Like when I was writing my book for the two months that I wrote till 2 a.m. every yeah. single day. You could have called like, me up. Got, <laughs> you were waking up and I was going You're to going sleep. To bed it's like the shift change. Because it was the same thing. It was like my house is not quiet until right. like X time. Yeah. So like I'm going to have to start writing at 11. And I will finish at like I will go to bed at like reluctantly at 2 a.m. So like we Dang. would almost have been hanging out. But it's the same amount of not sleep. Like you just have to pick which side you're going to have. That's true. I sleep better with my brain having rested for a while. (coughs) So when I wake up at 4 or 4.30, my brain has had some rest, and it does much better. I used to do that in college. Other people would pull all-nighters, and I realized it was much better for me to go to bed at 10.30 and wake up at 3 in the morning and cram for the test starting at 3 in the morning. I'm sure that is actually how your body works better. Anybody's. Yeah. Emily, Emily, did you have, like, um, waves of greasy melatonin, like, just pouring out of your pores because you were up all night? When you did you stay? She didn't yeah, stay up all night. I didn't she woke up like, in the morning. Get, obviously, when you're, when you're getting up super early, and your body doesn't want that. Doesn't give some indication. Her body always wants it. She's like morning no, is the time. Likes my up. body wait, likes to. I wake up on my own. Without. She, so you're saying it's an act of violence against yourself to sleep in. 
Yeah, probably that's probably true. It, it would be if she did it, but I've, she never does I, it. I'm guilt ridden for the whole day if I sleep too late because I lose so much time. Well, the other thing is she's very anxious, so her she wakes up thinking about all the things that need to be done, and so she wants to go do them. You know, true. Otherwise, I don't think she could relax. I, on the other hand, can pretty much you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty good at like you know, I'll get done. We'll do that. No, I my, mean, sometimes I my internal anxious, alarm but. clock wakes me up at usually four fifteen if I'm not if I haven't had to set it for four. Right. So, and just and I'll be laying there realizing I'm going over all the things I have to do and I'm like, wait, what time it is? It must be time to get up. Yeah. <laughs> Look. If I have to wake up earlier than normal, I get anxious. Like if we're gonna leave for a trip or something, then I, I don't sleep well because the whole time I'm just anticipating like oh, I need to get up. Yeah. So, but that's pretty much how you are all the time. I think. If I'm just in a regular schedule, I can. I'll sleep until 6.30, Something, 7 o'clock. Some, I mean, that's how the world gets run, right? Emily, if you, were, if you were a criminal, I think um, on the run, I think the bounty hunters would have their hands full with you because uh, I once heard two bounty hunters discussing, like, a raid they had to do. Some guy, like, you know, jumped bail. And, um, and he's like, man, I, you know, I, I got to wake up in the middle of the night tomorrow to get this guy. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? And he's like, oh, we always knock down doors at 4 a.m. Like, why? He's like, because that's when they're all sleeping. They passed out at 3.30, 4 a.m., they're gone. And, I mean, we come in. So 4 a.m. 4 a.m., yeah. It's good Lord was protecting me. I would make such a good criminal. Yeah, Dog the Bounty Hunter's <laughs> not getting you. You'd make a good criminal? I'd make such a I good criminal. I was going to say, clearly you're not made to be a criminal, but you're like, no, I'd be the no, successful criminal. I remember criminal. being 10 years old at the airport, like the little rinky-dink airport in the Quad Cities, and seeing all the flaws in the security system and be thinking, well, if I wanted to hijack this plane, this is exactly how I would coordinate it. When you were 10. You were like you were an airport hijacker. Well, she also in your loves mind. murder mysteries. So, no, just, not. But she's on like the, the wrong side. I just see the flaws. Like if you want to circumvent the system, it's not hard if you're looking to see the flaws in the way that they've arranged. It's things. probably better mentally though to see the flaws and like structural things than like at that precious age at your own self to be like you know woe is me. But. I think it's healthy. You I know, didn't like, want to, as a 10-year-old, hijack a plane. I just saw how it could happen. Yeah, we're not saying... See, yeah. I, have, I, I could be making a ton of money in counterterrorism coming up with ways Emily, we to needed... defeat the criminals and help figure out the flaws in the system. Instead, I am making no money as a Catholic writer. Well, Emily, See? if you can clone yourself and go back to that sweet golden age of 10, you can uh, stand beneath the Fern Hollow Bridge point out all the flaws and videotape it and then collect a, you know. But people no, were doing that. They, <laughs> they were doing that. Yeah. People happened? that were paid to do that were doing that. Toby and Beckett, when still... we drive across the bridges right now, point out the flaws that they see in the bridges. Well, there are a lot of flaws in our bridges. I know. I say our. So are we ready to start? Are we rolling? For those around the world listening to us, what is the Fern Hollow Bridge? Oh, Chris, can you move the boom toward you a little bit more? Like two more? inches? More? Even more? Yeah. Wow. There you go. Dang, I'm going to eat this thing. Uh, the Fern Hollow Bridge is the bridge in Pittsburgh and Squirrel Hill that collapsed just a little over a year ago. And remarkably, nobody was killed. There were people were injured, and there was a there was a, and it wasn't a like bus. A there was a city bus it was on a it. Bridge. Oh, yeah. It was across a you know, ravine that was, like I don't know what, a couple hundred feet deep. Yeah. I don't remember, but I mean, it's, it's high. Yeah, Frick Park. Should we introduce ourselves before we introduce the bridge? <laughs> I was going to use the bridge, actually. I was going to say that I feel like friendship is a bridge. Oh. And oh. In, in our current societal structure, it's a bridge that's collapsing. And and that's what we're addressing today. Or, and like, or Emily is going to uh, approach it with her eyes of wisdom, the 10-year-old 
terrorist. I'm I'm at nine. What are the flaws? So I don't have a lot of words left or wisdom. But you're going to introduce yourself first, right? Yes, so I am Emily Chapman, Emily Stimson Chapman online, but Emily Chapman in real life. And I'm with my husband, Christopher. To her right. Who's to, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend, right. Kate Stapleton. Yeah, so are we all in Mother of six and harpist, musician extraordinaire, poet, and her husband, Casey, who's going to talk a lot, but actually he's also manning the sound. And we are in the garret for our first first episode of our podcast. And there are nine children in the basement. They're not in the basement. basement. Well, they seem like they're in the basement. (laughs) They're on the first floor. They're so high up. (laughs) Our children are (laughs) safely on the first floor watching Sergeant Stubby. They're watching Sergeant Stubby, but we have no clue how long... This will last. So, but they have a competent babysitter. So our oldest is now. It's like a whole different universe when you have a thirteen-year-old who can babysit. I mean, and also like a eleven-year-old who can sort of babysit. Like the duo, like it's way better. That it just gets better. Like it's way, 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 way easier than when you only have little kids who can't babysit each other. That's what they all tell us. Last night our kids were like, "You should, you should go on a date. Like we can babysit. Like we really, we didn't, but they were like." Please go. Just go across the park. Look, there's a bar right there. <laughs> We've never gone to it, but they were like, we can see it. It would be fine. Just leave. When my children asking me to leave the room today, <laughs> she said, go. You go, mama. You go. I was like, Ellie, that do you want to? she's going to do something I know. Bad. I said, Ellie, do you want to do something bad? She said, yes. <laughs> you go, mama. What was it? I don't know. I didn't leave uh, the room. <laughs> she's pouring tons of stuff out. She probably just wanted to pour your... You know, makeup out or put lipstick on. Or I know she took the new beauty counter lip colored pencil, lip pencils, and drew all over the cardboard boxes in the entry hall right now. So you you told me that I should order one of the new beauty counter yes, colored pencils. Should. And you why should. why should I? I only ex- buy excellent. incredibly cheap makeup. You they're know, they're excellent like, to draw on cardboard boxes with. I don't want to draw on cardboard <laughs> boxes. <laughs> no, really good. I don't want to talk about beauty counter. No. So no. So tonight, this week is Valentine's Day, right? Uh, also, Ash Wednesday and the Feast of St. Cyril and Methodius. I think there's a lot you can get out of Ash Wednesday and, and Valentine's, <laughs> Valentine's Day. Day. <laughs> I used to, when I was other. single, I used to call whatever day it was of the week. So say if Valentine's Day was on a Wednesday, I would call it Black Wednesday. If it was Wait, so is it, when has Valentine's Day been on the same day as Ash Wednesday? Is that like... I don't remember that happening. I don't remember that happening, but I'm sure it has. I'm sure yeah, it has. And I'm pretty sure it happened Christ, when I was single. You know, resurrect. I'm sure. It's just, it's really dramatic. Like, it's a dramatic. Well, it's like the Annunciation and Good Friday falling on the same day, which does happen occasionally. And there's been some beautiful poetry written about that. So Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day maybe don't rise all the way to the Annunciation and Good Friday, but there's similar <laughs> motifs going on there. Yeah, Dramatic juxtaposition. Right. Yeah. And so for our inaugural podcast, we could have talked to her about romance. We could have talked about marriage, but I still have so many sympathies in the single person camp uh, that I'm sensitive to that. And I think that, honestly, the foundation for a good marriage is friendship. And so this week for our here, inaugural here, episode, here. friendship is what we wanted to talk about. Friendship between individuals, friendship between couples, friendship as you get older in life, making new friends, which can be mm. hard. Because community is what keeps us all sane. Marriage is great. I get so many comments 
I get so many questions from single people all the time saying, you know, if I'm not married, what is my purpose in life? Mm. How do I enjoy life if I'm not married? And I just want to be like, oh, honey, no matter who you marry, he's not going to be Jesus. And so, like, you, ha- marriage is wonderful. I'm married to a phenomenal, phenomenal man. Thank but you. marriage is not enough. And your marriages are going to be happier and healthier like and better. Book. Marriage is not enough for your friendships. No, it could be it could be a book about crossing the prairie, right? Because we've been talking lately about um, the way that we we did a lot of music projects about the the pioneers crossing the prairie. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is if you had I was reading um, after the last baby I had, I was really horrified because I was reading this. I don't remember the name of it. It was so depressing. It was like a a Norwegian crossing the prairie book, but there were so many were always dying of women. No prairie. women went insane and then smashed everyone in the head with a cast iron pan. Cause they were yeah. like alone <laughs> after having spent like millennia together in communities. Like when you mm. take people and you send them out completely alone, isolated. And they're like people from very strong cultures that had extraordinarily strong community. Yeah. And for the first time in like thousands of years, they're completely on their own with a howling wind like on the flat plains, like a mountainous culture of like intense togetherness. And the end result was often like women going nuts. Like it will drive you crazy to be alone. That lack of community Mm -hmm. will actually drive you insane. So, I mean, I think it's a fundamental, it's a kind of an American problem in a sense. Like, so as Americans, we're like the, the people who left the people who arrived here or people who are nomadic. Like there's so many pieces of what has brought us to who we are as a culture, but we we do have a culture that has a radical uh, solitary nature to households. We're far yes. away from each other and we're far away from friendship. So I think that we're less naturally grounded in community. And it makes people less happy. Like you're made for communion. You're made for communion with God and you're made for communion with other people. And if you're not in communion with other people, you're not being who God made you to be. And so you are misfiring. Things are not operating according to the manual. But Emily, what would you say to like a a room full of melancholics? <laughs> like if they're just in front of you, would you would you say the same message? Like you guys are made for a community. I mean, I mean, we know they are. But it's I good. am a melancholic. Yeah, are you though? I, I am. Mean, she's I'm, a choleric. I'm choleric melancholic. melancholic. I'm aspect. choleric melancholic. The is only it? reason I'm tolerable is because I'm melancholic. There's a sheen. There's a shine. Wait, wait. wait. No. Uh, Emily's a choleric melancholic. Chris, what are you? Phlegmatic melancholic. Probably. You guys are double melancholic. You so are she is talking to a room. But I'm more phlegmatic than melancholic. So. Yeah. No. I mean, but everyone. It doesn't matter if you're. So for people who don't know the four temperaments, the four temperaments are a classical way of looking at the human person, and um, it's very. So the saints. It's it's a very Catholic way of look, even though it's not Catholic. Well, it's very human. It. I mean, but the Greeks are the yeah, ones but, that really. Yeah. They're the ones that said it. It's just basically how you're wired. You know, it's a physiological response to the world around you. So. A sanguine has a quick response and a quick subsidence. A choleric has a quick response and a deep impression is made. <coughs> Excuse me. And then a melancholic has a slow response and a deep impression. And a phlegmatic has a slow response and a shallow impression is made. And usually all, most people are combinations of two. So, But it's really just how you respond to the stimuli in the world. It was very helpful for me when I you know, learned about it when I was, I don't know, late teens, early 20s probably, I guess. But just, you know, why do I respond the way I respond? It's really, you know, it's pre-virtue. It's, you know, it's pre, you know, it's just, you know, something happens to you and you respond in certain ways. 
So yeah, because because right. if grace builds on nature, you right. want to know like what we're dealing with first. You know, how, how what will I look like as a saint? What what's that supposed to manifest? Yeah. And if I'm a shy person naturally, am I going to suddenly become all like loquacious and talkative and right. charming? Like, you know, it's not in the cards. Um, yeah, this isn't a plug for Father Jordan Almond's spiritual theology book. Oh, that's great. That's Brent. a great one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Father Jordan Almond, A U M A. And then, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been pirated up the wazoo. I don't know how I feel about that, but at least it's out there. But it, it, it treats it really well. We, yeah. That's what we read in class for that one. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah, and I should have, we should have said Casey and Chris are both high school theology teachers. So they are on the front lines of trying to explain really complicated stuff to the least interested audience on the planet. That may be but true. they're interested. <laughs> they're interested in the temperaments, right? I mean, like yeah. Casey, what? How do yeah. you explain it to them when you're talking to your classes? I mean, luckily, like by that time in their in their high school lives, they've had a lot of like personality tests. They're thinking about what well, what major they'll do, they'll do in college, like job things. Um, so it's sort of like along those lines that they're, they've already been primed for that, and they love thinking and talking about themselves. You know, nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that, but um, I think I try to explain it as like. Uh, I guess it's just, you know, it's how, how you, like you said, respond to stimuli and how, how you retain it, right? How you perceive it um, and how you retain it, you know, and there's four of them. And then so we go through it. We give examples, you know, the choleric person, they apprehend things quickly and they retain them well. Mm-hmm. The sanguine, they apprehend things quickly, but they retain it poorly. You know, it's that person who like nods their head in math class and then promptly like just, they get, them, they, they get lobotomized at 3 p.m. and they just have no <laughs> idea what happened. They have the melancholic, they apprehend things slowly. Um, but retain it for a long time. And then, you know, phlegmatics, they apprehend things very slowly with difficulty, and they retain it poorly, you know. And then so, like, eventually, like, in class, we'll have them take a test. Um, that You know, there's a bunch online. You can, like, make one up. And, um, and it's hilarious. And all, for every 30 kids, there's usually one phlegmatic. That's what I found. It's the most rare. Really? Yeah. Like, like mm. a solid phleg, phleg you know. just. Oh, like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I've had a few of them. They, I had a shortstop. Yeah. I always use this as an example because he was just so slow and he was a shortstop and then I'd be like, Michael, you gotta, you gotta pick it up, bud. And then, you know, you'd hit the ball to him again and he said he'd picked it up, but he was just slow, hanging out, shortstop, throwing the ball over to first base. And, <clears throat> you know, as a coach, it's helpful. Like, all right, this is your, this is your temperament. Like, mm-hmm. and you probably can't be playing shortstop. You know, we need to put you somewhere else. Like you can hang out in center field or right field or left field. And, you know, if you have the talent. But I mean, it's, you know, it's not everything because we're not just a temperament, but uh, it does give you some self-knowledge and it also helps you understand, you know, your spouse, your friends, uh, you know, you're, we're just wired certain ways. And, you know, to expect something, you know, as you said, you know, to expect the, you know, the shy melancholic who's reserved to, you know, be the life of the party is just absurd. I mean, they're not going to be, you know, they have deep value as, as what they are, but you got to deal with them as they are. And then, you know, if we're talking about sanctity, then grace builds on nature, too. Like, you know, God's grace is going to affect the melancholic differently than the choleric. But it also shows you how you need to grow, because that's what I like about the temperaments as opposed to, like, Myers-Briggs or, you know, the New Agey Enneagram. Like, it's your temperament doesn't define you. So they say Jesus would have been a perfect balance of all four temperaments. And so I can recognize as a choleric melancholic where, okay, I'm reacting too fast or I'm holding on to this too deeply. I need to let grace help me learn to let this go or slow me down. And so that's your, your grace builds on nature and that is your nature and it's not going to change. But because we have reason and then there's the help of grace, we also can 
the goal is to keep becoming more and more of a balanced personality as you grow. So, you know, I hope when I'm, one of my favorite examples is Hildegard Bingen. It was super choleric, melancholic. She drove me nuts when I was writing the endowed study about her because we're so similar. And I was like, why are you acting like this? Oh, it's because I act like that. Um, but by the time, so she was so difficult when she was in her 30s and 40s and 50s. And she's mouthing off to bishops and she's telling abbots where they can put it. And she's, I mean, she was a very strong, my way or the highway, feeling everything incredibly deeply person. By the time she's 80, she's... Everyone's describing her as this incredibly gentle, wise, temperate woman who's very strong, but she's matured through grace to be this very balanced person. And so if God, I'm hoping God is merciful and grants me a long life so I can get there so too. So 80. But uh, <laughs> the whole point of this was, because we were talking about people, was whoever, what your temperament is. And we all have the same human nature. It doesn't matter if you're melancholic or phlegmatic or sanguine or choleric. We are all made for communion with God and other people. Now, that might mean that you get energized by large groups of people. It might mean you get energized by a conversation with one person. But unless you are the rare person who has an aromatic vocation, like you're called like to hermit. be... A hermit. Not like aromatic. Supernatural. Like a, yeah, not aromatic, but <laughs> aromatic. Like if you're called to be it's a, a good hermit. combination, though. Like, it's okay to be know. aromatic. And some hermits have been aromatic. Like St. Charbel, right, when he died? He, he was, was right. aromatic yeah. and yes. aromatic. Yeah. Double. The odor of sanctity, or what is it called? The uh, aroma of sanctity. Or yeah, so no, I think that's just so fact. It's like, we need people. It does Some people need people in small doses, in intimate doses, in conversations. Some people need, you know, more of a larger group. But if you don't have deep, intimate relationships, if you don't have someone you can talk to, you are not going to be a, as happy as you could be, yeah. and you're not going to be who God made you to be, because God made you for intimate communion with other human beings. And I think another aspect of that is we have some responsibility to the people around us. Like, it's not, you know, like I maybe need to offer my friendship or my, you know, my presence to somebody who is in need of it. I think... Uh, you know, our, you know, talking to Kate's point of like the culture has disintegrated. And I think, you know, 80, 90 years ago in different places, a lot of these things were just thrust upon you. It was just, you know, you all lived on the same block and you, you went to church and you hung out at the bar and you worked the same place and you just kind of knew people. But now everybody's in their car and we, you know, we're able to escape from people in all kinds of ways that you couldn't 80, 90 years ago. In our fallen nature, a lot of times we make bad choices to isolate ourselves uh, you know, from other people and also probably some of the things we do isolate ourselves from other people. But, you know, you look at that passage in Genesis where he tells, he reveals to Adam, and it's not good that man is alone. And it's easy to interpret that maybe solely through the lens of romance because Eve comes around, you know, after that. And, you know, he, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And we talk about marriage. But when I talk to the kids, they're like, this is, you know, this is a point of revelation by God. He's telling us it is not good for man to be alone. And, you know, and so friendship you know, to, you know, to walk through the world with a group of people that know you, uh, family, you know, but, but friends, you know, people that share the same interests, people that call you on, uh, you know, call you out of yourself or there for, I mean, all different kinds of ways. Um, you know, friendship is a deep, deep good, uh, that lots of people are lacking. So I think we were going to talk earlier about how we met. Like there were a lot of people who were like, how did you guys become friends? Which, I think started with you and Casey originally, right? So Chris, Chris and Casey have worked together for a long time. Chris actually 
okayed Casey for Chris his... Is, Chris was my overlord. <laughs> and my heart still <laughs> is. I was the Dawson bureaucrat that said yeah. yes to you. Yes. The gatekeeper, the janitor in the best sense of the word. So <laughs> when Casey and I first met, it he was he was like an aspiring musician followed by pizza delivery driver. And Dude, oh, 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 restaurant logistics coordinator. Get it, get it straight. <laughs> you, definitely. It was romantic. It was very romantic up until the point where he wanted to propose, at which point he was like, maybe I should be more than a pizza delivery driver. Even more. <laughs> like, and no offense to the pizza delivery drivers. I've done it too. So. Totally no, true. like it's it was amazing. He, he, he did good work there. Um, but he got his job. The, he got the go-ahead from Chris the day the day that we got engaged, like he went in and had like the day that he was like, okay, I'm going to propose. Yeah, Almost for sure, I didn't know that. I'm just you did not know. That. So. He wasn't like, I'm only going to get married if you right. say this is okay. I put he more pressure in. on the interview. Honestly. Yeah. So Chris used to be a high school teacher, and then he was a diocesan bureaucrat for a while in charge of 2007 to 2019 education right. in Pittsburgh, and then he went. He ran screaming from the diocese and went back well, to being. A I mean, Catholic I, you know, it was he ran a screaming a... from the diocese back into the diocese, back into the diocese, but to a school on the campus. Yes. He ran screaming from the chancery. I was saved. I got my escape route. <laughs> he was delivered. And no offense. I mean, I you know I respected all the people I worked with, but no offense, being a diocesan bureaucrat is its own kind of purgation. Probably any kind of bureaucrat is its own kind of purgation. But yeah. So, but one of the meaningful things I did in that job was I vetted uh, potential religion teachers, and so Casey was one of those. We, that was pretty early, because I started in 2007. That would have been, what, 2008 or nine. It was or, 2008, yeah. Was it? Yeah. it was really early. Because we I met them great. not too long after they got married. Yeah. At We were going to like the Patty Griffin concert at the Art Fest or something. Yeah, like downtown, that. Oh. downtown oh, Pittsburgh. That, that where that where, the, you guys. where the, the Arts Festival. Well, that's the, uh, uh, yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Kate and Casey, for those who have not seen them, are an incredibly striking couple. They're both over six feet tall with jet black hair. I believe at the baptism. That's right, Toby, handsome and beautiful. My, my and friend Lindsay goes, who are the fancy people? <laughs> so I remember the first time I met you, I was like, wow, they're striking. But that wasn't when we first met, though. You first met us. So like it was no, the I met year you that in the middle of the street. You did. You yes, I never you met, met us you yes. at the art we fest the very no briefly. And I too yes. thought, who are the fancy people? At the, the fancy people. That was yes. Um because we were headed to like a Chris, samba you, performance or something. Chris? We were headed to a samba performance. I mean, vaguely now that you're. I got about bonked it, but... on the head. We were on our way to a samba performance up on the main stage. That's right, and you got yeah. bonked oh. on the head by the parking. I was like, guillotine. Casey and I got into a fight. We had like, I had a baby in a sling, and I was oh, like, no. I'm going this way. We're late. And Casey was like, Don't go that way. And I was like, I'm going anyway. And then a parking, like a parking garage bar came down and hit oh, me on the man. head like i was so self-righteous i was so self i was like you don't even know i'm wearing like six inch high glittering heels so like, like six like, foot seven i'm like six foot seven i'm wearing like half of my samba costume See, this and is, i was like this is you're Ash not Wednesday even listening and, to and me you don't even know where i'm going i'm gonna be there on time like baby strapped to me and then like i like literally saw stars i was like Argh. oh my gosh and then you ran into us. And then I ran into you guys. That was, I was less painful, a little dazed so. and confused. But we we never actually hung out until the year that, that Casey and I decided as like a New Year's resolution that we were going to invite people over for dinner. Like invite interesting people over. Well, that was for after that Emily know. and I eventually got married, right? Yeah. I mean, so. No, you weren't married yet. It was actually you were no, first. No, we were married when we first came to your house because we drove to, from Steubenville. Because you were I trying know. to convince us to buy in Lawrenceville. You were 
engaged because I, I wrote to just Chris and was like, Casey was like, oh, so what, what, what it was was we were like, okay, we want to hang out with people. We want to go on dates. We had three little kids and like no money. And we were like, well, we could, we could like clean our house, which is hard to do if we don't have people <laughs> coming over. And oh, wait, was that the one where I'm like, no children? Yeah, and well, because you had another memory. couple over with children, bef- not long before, I believe they had done some interesting things with your guitar, like jumping, oh, no. iris jigging on the guitar case. Yeah, mm. that was fine, though it worked out well. Um, <laughs> but we, we were like, okay, we can afford to like cook a nice meal and clean our house, and it will be like a date. Like we get to hang out with each other and have interesting conversations with people, have a couple drinks, have people over. So we were like, we're gonna invite people we don't know. Like every every couple months, we'll invite people that we're interested in. Don't know super well, and Chris was on the list because Casey was like, "What about Chris Chapman?" Like, right? What did you say? You were like, "No, I mean it's like uh, <clears throat> for those who don't know, um, Chris Chris Chapman is like uh, he's like a shepherd on a map." Anyway, like when you were in the diocese, you, no, he, like you would send you us with that you'd send us a there. lot of uh, no, you'd send us a lot of like really solid, just meaty like nutritional stuff for our minds to consider. That was, sure, that was part of my job. I would send things out to religion teachers just as like FYIs, like here's yeah, interesting interview book. But you, you always know, sent out really kind of great good interviews. stuff, like, like, like really asymmetrical, books. out of left field, but but totally like within the game and just uh, like interesting angles. It's, it's like like a fighter like hitting you from like weird bizarre angles. Like, pretty, like <laughs> uh, it was cool. And so like I'd use them a lot, and um, which is right up Casey's alley because Casey is a genius teacher of doing things that. Just interesting angles and and all kinds of interesting takes on things. I like I would I would totally love being a high school student in your class. Oh, thanks, so Chris. I would sign up for it. I do it I now. Would, I would also sign up actually. Yeah, yeah, I would. I think it would be fascinating. The stories that I've heard are really really intriguing. Well, we can make like a night class for the grownups. <laughs> like, come on in. You know, sit down. <laughs> it might have to. Your happen. knees might hit the desk. You know, whatever. <laughs> So, but we were, Casey was like, Chris Chapman is so interesting. And so I sent him an email. Still is, still is. He he still is. (laughs) But um, I sent him an email and he was like, would it be all right if I bring my lovely new fiance? Oh. Emily Stimson. (laughs) She's amazing. 100% by the time you actually got there, yes. We were married by the time we got there. But you were like, so that it got put off. But when I invited him, he was like very newly and excitedly engaged. And he was like, I she's amazing. I really want to bring her. This is going to be great. Of course. So, um, so that was how we ended up hanging out. It was one of these like we're going to have dinner with people we don't really know who are super interesting, and we're still now. That's how we ended up in this attic in this crumbling mansion. That's a great idea, though. I mean, I think we've talked about that, and we've done it. I mean, we just having people over. I mean, talking about friendship. You know, if you're out there listening, like, well, how would you? even start i mean that's a great idea just invite you know people that you find interesting over for dinner i mean it's very low-key you know you're just you know if they're a couple you know you invite the couple and make sure their kids don't dance on the guitar if you have a guitar but i mean make sure you have a hard case we just bought a hard case (laughs) we needed one for our own children anyway it was really just like a early intervention but see here's where people get caught up because husbands will say oh yes just invite we'll just invite interesting people over for dinner and some wives say yes let's just invite interesting people over for dinner but other people think oh well we don't have a nice enough house or i'm not Mm. a good enough cook or oh my gosh what's going to happen with the kids they're going to throw macaroni and cheese on the floor and our guests are going to think we're actually parents okay how do you get over yourself? So here's a really, this is a perfect way for me to address this because I just remembered why we sent our children away that night because Casey was like, 
Okay, so now Chris is going to bring Emily, like his lovely new wife, Emily, who happens to be the author of The Catholic Table. Oh, yeah. And I was like, are you serious? I now have to make dinner for the author of The Catholic Table. Like, I was so horrified. And I think this is why it's also... Hold on, hold on, pause. Were you as horrified of this as you would be later on when we invited the owner of a prestigious... you know, prestigious hot dog shop to our post baptismal oh, celebration. Oh, that's right. I remember the story. Yeah. yeah, in case you made the worst hot dogs. The in worst history. hot dog. Well, right. I think that, that, that's why it's an important <coughs> story because it's like so. Not everyone is the same, right? Like Emily can invite people over at the drop of a hat because her house is always perfect, it even is if not it's a crumbling mansion. Perfect. It's relatively not always perfect. Always per- okay, so no, I have three it's not dump children who dump. It is no longer always perfect. It's no longer Five always perfect. Ago, it now it's only like ninety nine point seven percent perfect. On a sliding scale, it's not. So, but it, my, it's ask good my that sisters. I'm here my as a control. My house is a sin that cries out to heaven. There's a whole my standard is, is different. What I'm saying. Yes. So, like, True. I feel like my my house is way more stressful for me. So for me, I get excited about inviting people over because then I will be like, okay, I'm going to scour and clean my house. Or it's still too hard. You invite people over when your house is messy so that you have an excuse to clean. I do. Yeah, Yeah. I totally do that. Um, Because then I clean it and then I'm like, wow, why do I never do this for myself? (laughs) This is so nice. And I never do. And then I'm like, some people do this and they're so smart. Like, they're just like, I guess I'll just clean my house today. But I have to have this, like, invite the author of the Catholic table. Like, I was terrified. Let's have a party for 30 people so I'll clean my house. But my house is messy. I should have a party. I like so having I'll people over, house. but wait, I don't wait. like cleaning my house. Can, but I, can I just say something real quick? Yes. Um, Emily, in your book, the uh-huh. Catholic, I think it's the Catholic table. It is Catholic table. Uh, the one about the... Uh, it's like the bare minimum you should do before you host a party. Oh, that was really good advice. Yeah, yeah. like I'm yeah. a guy, you yeah. know, and I find that... Mm-hmm. Not that like other yeah. non-guys, but like I just find that very helpful. And it's, it's a reasonable amount of... Um, it's just very like reassuring, the amount of... Can, can you, like, yeah, talk run about over that? Yeah, um, like, wipe down your toilet and your sink, especially if you have a potty training child. <laughs> wipe down the toilet and the sink. Um, make sure there's places for people to sit. So, like, clear a path. Clear off. If there's laundry on the sofa, take it off. If there's Legos all over the floor, clear a path for people to move around. Uh, shut the doors every place else because if the kids get in, they're going to trash it anyhow. But, you know, and then maybe if you have a chance, clean off your... Sweep the floor or something if you can. But really, like people need a place to sit, and they need a place to go in the bathroom that's not covered with four-year-old pee. And so, is there like an acronym you use? Like what? uh, Bathroom, pee. You're gonna have to make. I don't know. You're gonna have to make it up. I I think that guidance though is really that is really basic, great guidance. Like I I do find that helpful because as a person who doesn't know how to clean my house on a daily basis, like if someone's coming over, I'm like, whoa. One I should deep done. clean that one third cabinet in my kitchen and that no one's ever seen. Nobody cares about your they baseboards, don't. and if Only... they do care about their your baseboards, they really need to be invited over and loved because their hearts are so broken that they need <laughs> to be in a profound and deep way. Like it's so funny because I am I have I keep a fairly neat house, not according to my sisters, but according no, to the rest of the like non neurotic population. Not undermine it and. Uh, but my favorite places to go often aren't the cleanest places. I like going places that are messy because, well, it makes me feel a little bit better about my own home. <laughs> my house is like, always open to hey, you. I love going yeah, to Kate's You can house. always come have pizza. I love your house. <laughs> I do, but I love it because it's welcoming. I don't care if the house is messy or if there's food on the floor. Like, the question is, am I being 
talk to is someone listen am I able to listen to people are they able to listen to me do they care about me are we having fun are we having a conversation like I will sit in squalor if there's a great conversation that's what I care about and food Kate is one a phenomenal cook mm. and makes the world the best pizza in all of oh, the Ohio Valley and so good conversation and good food I don't care right. about your house but you have a cool house it's a very Kate house yeah, so if Kate, you're not a good cook, you Kate, send out, and if you are a good cook, you get to show off and, you know, good conversation and, and food. and People want to feel appreciated. They want to feel known. They want to be invited. And that's how you actually get to be friends. You don't get to be friends by always putting on the best face and having your immaculate house and your perfectly prepared food and everything is perfect. Like, friends are friends in the messy. I want friends who can come over and see my house is falling apart. And, All right, Emily, I got to ask yeah. you a question. So what if what if I'm not a good cook? What if what if I'm just a ramen noodle master? Like, what do I do? Like, how can are, I, you, are you saying that because you you're a ramen noodle master? Is there a coincidence? Like, <laughs> hey, Casey, I didn't want to pull actual, a muscle, pat myself like, on the back tonight. Sorry, you know can what? we talk about your outdoor... Flame the midnight walk. kitchen, yeah, midnight the midnight diner. diner. Like you're the proprietor of the midnight diner. I feel like you're setting yourself up as like, can we talk about your ramen noodles? Because no, they no, are no. rather. You I'm invite people saying. over for a ramen noodle. Feast. No, because maybe there's somebody that's not good at cooking. You know that like you know the, the grilled yeah. cheese sandwich game is you know. You can mid. order pizza. Like order okay. ordering pizza. Like, no one's gonna be pizza. sad if you're like, hey, that's do true. you want to come over? Come over and have, and have pizza, pizza with us, and yeah. we're gonna order pizza, and here's some wine or some soda or whatever it is, and you talk. Like people want. Company. They don't want four star, five star dining. They don't want clean baseboards. They want somebody who cares about them enough to talk to them and welcome them, invite them into their home. And if you're able to pay attention to people, that is all it takes to be a successful host. Pay attention to people, make them feel loved and welcomed, and forget about yourself for five minutes and let them into your home. And it's okay if it's messy. It's okay <coughs> if you're not a good cook. Like, that's what matters most. And you're not at home and you're not doing your own dishes, which is yeah. great when you're at other people's houses. Most people, you're not doing dishes and you're not cooking. So I used to, in Steubenville, have these dinners every Thursday night. And I would invite anyone and everyone. And there were nights we'd have like 50 or 60 people and, you know, 20 kids. 50 or 60 people. 50 or 60 yes, people. It's true. It's true. So like consistency, night, you feel like consistency is important here? Like yeah. you, you did it every Thursday. I did it every Thursday. Like we did it, I think, once every yeah. once every month or once every two months. I the was year that we were single. like... But I mean, like, so for us, when we had three little kids, we were like, every two months we can have someone over. I think, but having a consistency to it was, I feel like, allowed us to continue doing it regularly and not Consistency is good, and it becomes part of your habit that you're cooking. It becomes part of other people's habits that they're going. Lo- I mean, people all, looked forward to that. Was a thing. They loved it. Thursday they didn't have to cook was, on Thursday yeah. night. They're like, I'll bring my bottle of wine and show up. So in up, that sense, to impose a Catholic term on it, you know, it's, it becomes liturgical, you know, or ritualistic. Yeah. If, you know, so there's a rhythm to it. And people expect it, you know, you could do a little a petite prompts on this, you know, with the, you know, the, the little prince where there's an expectation of a time, you know. So I think, you know, something about friendship is some regular occurrence to it, right? Yeah, you know, you can count on it. And I would say for Chris and I host, I mean, we've been sick and moving the past few weeks, but almost every week we have somebody over for dinner, whether it's one person coming over to join us or a family coming over to join us. Hardly a week goes by that we don't have somebody over for dinner. And the more you do it, the easier it gets because I don't feel like I have to put on a big show for people. Like, hey, here's a pot of soup. Hey, we're going to order pizza. Here's whatever we're having tonight. You're welcome to join us. You're a good cook, but you know, sometimes it's just a simple 
meal. I mean, you do you're fantastic with risotto, but which is a little more complicated. But I served like a big pot of soup to everybody tonight before right. this. So that's very good. Thank you. But but again, you don't have to you know prove something to your guests. Uh, at least with our group of friends, you don't have to. I mean, you're a good cook, and we're friends with good cooks. But you know, there's a simplicity about it that's just like we just want you to come over and whatever is going to make that possible. Well, it's the difference between, so people talk about entertaining, they talk about hosting, mm. but I think more in terms of hospitality. And hospitality is really just welcoming people into your home and into your life. And it's welcoming them. It's inviting them in. It's a form of being open to life. Like if hospitality is an expression of openness to life. And so, you know, we don't expect our kids to come into the perfect environment and the home is always going to be perfect. And we're going to be perfect because we're not perfect it has to be, it's natural. And so here's a pot of soup in my somewhat messy home. And our house right now literally is crumbling. It's such a, you know, there's... But in like a really romantic... It's half really romantic. Yeah. yeah. So. But I don't, it's, I'm not here to show off my home or show off my cooking. I just want people over here so that we can hang out and talk and get to know each other, spend time with each other. You know, we're, Kate and I are used to seeing each other a couple times a week and now we don't get to do that. So I just want Kate and Casey to come over and hang out. And I that's, know. I think, what we want to do with this podcast, right, is kind of invite people to have a conversation that is not like a super perfected conversation. Like it's not somewhere that you're going to go for all of the answers. I feel like there's a lot of podcasts that are like, here's exactly how you do this thing right the, about a mm. whole range of things. And I feel like we're we don't feel like we know how to do things perfectly, but we we're, we're hoping to like invite people to have an imperfect conversation that's that's hospitable and that has like a level of openness yeah. about it like when did yeah. that become the new buzzword of um like let's have a conversation about like we're, we're in converse not i'm not like dissing it it's a good it shows that there's a dialogue taking place as opposed <laughs> to monologue but it it's just and, and it's not the kind of conversation i want out of this not that like I want to, re- you know, like a real conversation in the classical sense, not the, hmm. not the like we're in conversation. Like, the, I said a lot without saying anything. Do you guys <laughs> do it when I'm? I don't know. I mean, I think one of the problems these days. So I can't watch any cable news anymore because everybody's pontificating and the tone of voice is, you know, I've got all the answers and this person is good and this person is bad. And I talk about a, this a lot in this Substack, just about. Life is not a social media feed. It's not, you know, so much is geared towards getting clicks and likes and saying the extreme thing that fits into a soundbite. And it doesn't actually help you mature as a Christian. Like soundbites have no place usually in Christian maturation because life is complicated. Ooh, that's good. Soundbites have no place in Christian maturation. Can we make turn that into a soundbite? No, well, it's true. And also, like, I feel like Casey's statement about, like, when did having a conversation become a thing? It's, it's interesting because I think it's correlated with people not having conversations. Yeah, people's inability to so have a conversation. So at the same time that people were like, whoa, you need to have a conversation. Or you need to sit and listen. It was disassociated from people having conversations that made them uncomfortable or having conversations where there was an openness to sitting and listening to someone else. Like actually people from different viewpoints sitting down and talking about things or people talking about uncomfortable things. I feel like we've really due to our music and the work that we've done in the past few years, we've been able to travel across the country and have conversations with a great deal of people from a great deal of different perspectives and like, and actually have that conversation. So I think I think you're hitting on something where that, uh, like, 
there is a sort of, there's a deep desire for conversation. And a need for it. And a lack of it at the same time, which is something that we're like humbly, (laughs) haltingly attempting to address. I'm glad you spoke to that because I was just thinking of cutting that out, but... um... No, no, no. It's no, no. Okay. Keep, keep it. We'll tell you when you have to cut things out, Casey. Casey's <laughs> job is to show up and make people feel really awkward, like, and prompt actual conversations that no one wants to have. That's like, that's his, his genius, Thank right? You. You're, good. You're a little grenade thrower that way, aren't you? Yeah. We're all yeah. like, what is Casey going to say? This week's going to be game. Well, but... You know, I think we brought it up before we were on the air, but, you know, there's something just about the meaningful in itselfness of a good conversation. Like, it's not agenda driven like you're enjoying the other person you know oftentimes like i i like to ask people what they're reading like i'm very interested in what people are reading you know not to size them up or you know like i just i genuinely you know or what are you listening to like what you know these are meaningful things in people's lives but you know it's interesting thing as americans almost always we ask somebody that we don't know what they do uh you know which which i wrote a book about i read a book about that that said that like in England, it'll be like, what class are you? And mm. in America, it, the first question people ask each other is always, what do you do? Yeah. Not like, what do you read? Not what do you, which I think is a great question that we should all answer the, what are you reading and what are you listening to? I think that would be a really good, Chris, what are you reading and what are you listening to oh, right now? Well, I'm reading uh, a book called Atonement by Margaret Turek, which uh, is interesting in itself, but the reason I got super excited about it is, it's, it's a book about atonement, and so it's a theological book, but there's a theologian that I read years ago because of Dr. Scott Hahn named Norbert Hoffman, and so there are four theologians that she deals with in here, and he's one of them, and, and the thing that caught my attention was, like, I've never come across him in any other, at any other time except when Dr. Hahn said, hey, read these two articles. One was about, like, the Sacred Heart, and I forget what the other one was, which clearly Margaret Turk has read. And so it just caught my attention. It's like, oh, she's reading Norbert Hoffman, which is the guy that, you know, I don't know, I wrote a paper, you know, 28 years ago or when I was in grad school. So I just got excited about that. And then there's also a book on uh, politics and distributism uh, by this guy at a CUA who is actually an economist. So, like, I'm interested in distributism, which is kind of a G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc take on society and economics but usually it's faulted for being naive and not workable and so this guy is an actual economist and he says it's true that some of the things they say are not workable but it shouldn't be dismissed on those grounds and so i'm very interested i want to see what he has to say as an economist of how does he assess these things and like what does he see that is workable in there because i'm not i've never studied no. Distributivism. Well, I mean, I've read some things, but I've never studied, you know, um, I'm not or... e- economics. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm struggling for. But what are you reading, Kate? Oh, and what are you writing? I you just wrote a book. You first. wrote a book. I was going to make so. Casey and Emily. We're not sizing you up. Just we're just, <laughs> um, we're just having a conversation. I, we're not I'm asking the audience. Currently to reading. Size you up I'm either. reading uh, Little Women: Letters from Abroad, oh. which is uh, the letters that uh, Louisa May Alcott and her sister May wrote when they went to Europe. But I also, I just finished, um, I finished Wild by Cheryl Strayed, which I, I have never read on purpose. I I never, I I have issues with hiking, hike intense 
hiking. Like I didn't want to read a whole book about hiking. I want to go on like I want to go to Santiago de Compostela, mm. but I don't want to read a whole memoir about hiking. And also, her memoir was so like so successful that I was irritated that right, I. No, so right. I, I was like, wow, I don't trust it if it's so successful. successful. I mean, like, like if everybody likes it, I probably everyone won't. liked it. I didn't see the movie. I didn't read the book. And then so I had I just finished writing a memoir, and I was reading all of these like websites about submitting memoirs and it was constantly referencing memoirs and that one came up so often as like a piece of excellent memoir that I was like I have to I have to read this book like I went to the Carnegie Main Library and like kind of revisited why I live in Pittsburgh and was like went to see the dinosaur like through the windows in the mm. back of the library super romantic um walked through the stacks got like 14 books like that's how I ended up with little woman when it was just on the way like there was like a pile of like amazing books you should read um I read it I thought it was really interesting for a hiking novel or a hiking <laughs> memoir um but it was well written um I was really struck by the fact that it's 1000 percent an abortion memoir hmm. and nobody talks about that wow. they talk about how it's a mother's uh, it's a grief memoir because her mother died, which is true. And like, she has a fierce, extraordinary grief over her mother's death, but she also has an abortion the night before she decides to go on the hike. Oh, wow. And she finishes the hike on what would have been her due date and her mother's birthday. And when she, the, when she has the abortion, she talks about it in somewhat regretful terms before it happens. And then she says, I had an abortion and I learned how to make turkey jerky and I packaged up these dehydrated foods and like that's literally how the sentence goes. It's this long run on sentence that's like I had an abortion and I learned how to make turkey jerky and I had to change. I had to change. Mm. And then it ends up with this sentence that's somewhat extraordinary about the size of the mountains and the size of the cavern beneath. And I think the language in it is really she is a beautiful writer. Um it's, it was worth me reading for sure. But I think I read a bunch of articles after I read it about how uncomfortable. So I just wrote a, a book length. You know, I wrote a, a rough draft of a manuscript that it's, a, it's about adoption. And I read a lot of articles about how. Because no you one are a birth mother. Because I'm a birth mother. Yeah. So I placed a daughter for adoption. Um, and I read a lot of articles after I read Wild about how nobody talks about, from pro-choice people, about how no one talks about it, the fact that it's an abortion memoir, and about how uncomfortable people are with that, and people don't want to buy. There are very few memoirs about abortion, mm -hmm. and the ones that there are, like even pro-choice people won't get behind it if there's a, if there's a complexity in the way that they reflect upon it. Yeah. So I there's just this extraordinary lack of desire. Like people talk about, what happens, what, what decisions you make when you get pregnant, but nobody wants to reckon with the complexity of what happens to you as a woman mm. after that, whether you had an abortion or you placed a child for adoption or you're a single mother, I think. So I read, I read Maid and I read Wild and kind of in the middle of that, reading that and thinking about that. So that's what my reading's been lately. Wow. I'm glad I asked. That's fascinating. I just read about death. You know that. I only read murder mysteries these days. Which, what are you reading right now? I just finished An Incomplete Revenge, which is, I think is number five in the Maisie Dobbs mystery series while the kids were sick. And it was excellent and not deep. Emily, I'm not familiar with those books. Like, what time period 
Uh, Maisie Dobbs is set in this one's set in 1931. So in, it's sort of in the post-World US or like War One, England. England, okay. Yeah, preferably I read British death. Of course, British where all the death. Right, no, I, I prefer British death <laughs> to American death. <laughs> That's all. Why is that? Uh, it's There's very human. It. It's just very human. I don't know. They have tea and makes her husband a little nervous. But aren't, aren't, <laughs> wait, but aren't villains aren't villains in movies often cast as British people? Like, have you noticed that they're yeah. often given British accent? They're not given. The them... British do murder very well. Yeah. They do murder. They do. It's well, very human because they. Is it aloofness? Um, American murder mysteries are always way overcomplicated, and they're usually too sexual. And there's some sexual neuroses at the basis of the crime. Where British murder mysteries are often deeply rooted in human nature. Like they understand hmm. sin, they understand uh, that it is a choice, that you're not acting on some neuroses, but you too could be a murderer, Casey. Like but, you, but anybody we, could do it. I feel like they also dress better. I mean, that's a very superficial <laughs> thing, like in, the, in movies. They, like British they dress films. better, they eat better. They wear vests. They, I mean, yeah. they don't. At least the men do. I don't know. So. They take time. They take like a no British murder mysteries. That's that is that is where I am in life. Right I have to now. say there is a genius, obviously, to the English and plays and murders. They they understand the inner workings of these things and also pop music. Yeah, you don't you so. don't conquer the world with a couple of ships and stuff with by being a bunch of knuckleheads. You gotta you right. Know. There's something going on there. Okay, yeah. so here's why I think I like murder mysteries. I do. I answer complicated questions all week long for people. People ask me about relationship struggles and why their son has cancer and how they're supposed to deal with their daughter who thinks she's a boy who's dating a girl and how do they deal with that with their younger children. And even though I, you know, truth is not relative when you're dealing with people, it's hard to know, like, how do you love this person best? And I don't know what to tell you because I don't know your personality. I don't know your sister's personality, your husband's personality. I don't know how to answer this question. I don't know how to answer the questions a lot of people ask me because I don't know them. And so when I read a murder mystery, like, there is an answer that can be figured out. And it's clear. Like, this person killed this person. And... I like that. I like reading something where the truth is very black and white and I can figure that out as I'm reading it and I don't feel like I'm going to be ruining someone's relationship with their sibling or their mm. self. I'm not like... Or you, you get know, very good answers to those and as much as you can I do, but if there's answer, something nice and simple yes. about, you know, the butler did it and it's... I like the butler did it. That's right. I wish the butler did it all. Do you ever wonder why the butler did it? Because the butler's pantry in our house is very poorly designed. Wait, I would be really happy if I was a butler in your house. I might actually like sign up for the job. Like this. (laughs) Oh, good. The like this house is designed for. (laughs) I know we need servants. We need servants. You have a wing. Like I, this could be an English murder mystery site. Like you could, could, (laughs) like. I might move in up here. Like, I feel you, like the butler would have so too. much space. Your whole family could take up the third floor. It's easily. so true. Um, yeah. Casey, what are you reading, yeah, listening to, you. or watching? I feel like. That's right. Wow. You're, you're Thank you for uh, emphasizing watching. Um, yeah. Just because. Because <laughs> bring... I watch you watch it while I'm reading every night. That's right. There's there's a window between us um, where you, you can see what I'm watching, and I can see your reflection reading a book. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bunch of stuff, um, like, for spiritual reading, I'm going through the Gospels and uh, letters to St. Paul slowly. I mean, it's my job, but it's also, like, edifying to, you know, to mm-hmm. know stuff. Um, I'm doing a sp- spattering here and there of, like, church documents. Um, like, the, the 
I always forget the names. The recent one about the blessings of like you know oh, yeah. the gay couple. Producian supplementum. Yeah, I forget the name, yeah. but FC. Um, FS. FS. Bunch of different podcasts. Uh, I'm also reading a lot of instructional things. Um, Family Handyman. Family Handyman. Uh, and also, uh, I'm rereading um, Selko. I had to look up his name. It's like Selko Bergovich or Bogovich, uh, Memories from the Balkan War. Hmm. Um, it's like a book. He like survived the Serbian Bosnian War in the 1990s, and he wrote like a book about it. He wrote several books, and he does like workshops for people that are trying to, you know, think they're hard, like survivalist preppers and stuff. And he like just you know rocks their world and screams at them and stuff. <laughs> um, no, but he mostly shares stories of like what happened. So he's a storyteller, but. There's there's not like an ostensible like theological thread that weaves through it, uh, but I think from like a, a natural a natural perspective, you can see how um, he he really identifies like sinfulness in people, and he talks about how um, you know like like Jesus says like he who's faithful in small things will be faithful in great things as well. But he sees that before the war, uh, people who were miserly, people who were cheaters, people who were who had some like weird like underlying strange vice. It was amplified when civilization collapsed in Europe. Mm. And when the police moved out, the military pieced out, all these little warlords popped up. And he has a cool story of uh, there was one guy who wasn't very brave. He wasn't very, like, buff or anything. He wasn't, like, handsome or charismatic or anything. But I think he worked at a museum. I could be wrong. Um, But he was always kind of creative in a weird way. And after the war, he bumped into the guy. And he's like, whoa, you survived, you know? And he's like, how did you survive? Like, you're not strong. You didn't own any guns. He's like, man, this is how I made it. Like, when things started collapsing, I broke into the museum. What? Yeah. I stole this antique World War II machine gun. (laughs) And and I got, like, sandbags. And and at night, I would drag dead bodies and post them around my property so people would think I'd kill them. And so people started thinking of me as a psycho warlord. So they left me alone. I'm like, wow. See, smart. But I mean, but afterwards, like, he just talks about, like, that guy, everybody had, like, you know, trauma, PTSD, whatever you want to call it. Um, But that guy was one of the most, like, you know, not that he was, like, a superstar, but he was one of the most uh, healed or well-adjusted individuals, I think, because he understood um, that he had to get through this. He had to bend a couple rules. He didn't want to break. He didn't really want to kill people. He didn't want, you know... um, and he he didn't kill people. He didn't, just as far as I know. Yeah, he, he didn't compromise the morality, unless I left details out. There's probably somebody listening here. But um, but it was just a fascinating read. And he has, like, several other books, too, about mm-hmm. this. But wow. uh, um, but to just, just to know that, like, after that war and after that trauma, these people survived. And a lot of them, like, were just dying of loneliness, which brings us back to the topic. There yeah, that's a very recent war. Like, yeah. I remember yeah. having yeah. an exchange student who was my age who I met, and she was like, yeah, everyone just went out to the fields, like, as, like, 13-year-olds. Wow. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, the loneliness was uh, super intense. No, and I think, so. like, even what, just so talking about this, one of the things Chris has pointed out is people aren't very good at asking questions anymore. So when people get stressed about hosting or how you... Like, how do you make friends? Like, asking people questions, asking them what they're reading, asking them what they're watching. Like, not feeling like you have to perform for people, but just asking honest questions about what somebody's doing or what they're Mm -hmm. thinking about. Like, how that... It's just an easy way to approach hosting. Like, you're not trying to impress people. It's not about you. It's about learning more about them. 
Right, Casey? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On which note, we have nine children downstairs. I feel like this is I the know. first time of all of our dinner parties that we've ever gotten to talk to each other because we were like, we're going to go In two this floors way, yeah. away. Usually we're with attending to a child. We're <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> going into the attic. All of the children who we have to return to. But we'll have to come back to this because this is been such a great time i, I know i feel this. like we hardly touched on all the well, things next time right next that's time. one of the beautiful things about conversations and having people back you can continue conversations it's one of the nice things about teaching right i mean you bring something up two months later you revisit like oh you know this 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 is what we're talking about i just saw this in the newspaper or whatever so so we'll come back we'll come back revisit the conversation we will and now we're going to go see who's alive downstairs <laughs> <laughs>